Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is David Kershaw. I'm the Dean of uh, LSE Law School, and I'll be uh, chairing tonight's event. Um, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, 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 for coming tonight. We've got a wonderful event. Before I talk a little bit about what's going to happen over the next hour and a half, just a couple of housekeeping pointers. Uh, first of all, as you know, the two fire exits are behind us. If we need to use them, you go out where you came in. Um, secondly, uh, we have our Twitter handle here, um, if you want to uh, use that. Okay, so tonight's event is the Oceans Treaty as a win for multilateralism, what lies ahead? The Oceans Treaty, uh, otherwise known as the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdictions Treaty, the BBNJ. Tonight is a night of acronyms. Uh, There are many of them. Um, This is an exceptional achievement, this treaty. And we are privileged tonight to have with us four people who were central to the production of that treaty. It's a a real privilege. And I think tonight is, I think, for all of us here in this room tonight and online. I should have said, everyone online, welcome to you. Tonight, I think this is about three things. First of all, this is about learning about this treaty. For us to find out what it is, what it does, what it doesn't do, how it works, how it was produced, how the negotiations worked to produce it. Secondly, I think it's just a celebration. This is an incredible achievement, and when amazing things like this happen, we should celebrate it. And then I think thirdly, this is uh, about many things that that our colleagues are doing in relation to the the, the BBNJ Treaty, uh, which is it's about generating momentum. Momentum that results in its ratification, momentum that results ultimately in it coming into force. So uh, we have four speakers for you tonight. Uh, I will introduce them in in, uh, the order with with, with which they will speak. Um, First of all, my wonderful colleague, uh, Dr. Shiva Tambasetti, uh, who is an associate professor here at the LSE Law School. Uh, uh, Shiva, as many of you in the room know, is an expert in the regulation of innovations, uh, inventions, uh, patents, genetic resources, cultural property. Uh, But the reason she's here tonight is because she was closely involved in the production of this treaty. Uh, Shiva attended the Intergovernmental Conference uh, for the Oceans Treaty in two different respects. Uh, First of all, she attended as an advisor to the Pacific Small Island Developing States. Uh, And then she came back uh, as an expert to uh, uh, the G77 Chairs Team, both in 2022 and in 2023. Shiva will kick us off tonight. Uh, She will give us the keynote explaining how the treaty works, uh, how it came to be produced. And then we will have uh, three separate comments uh, on uh, the treaty and the treaty process. And in the order within which they will uh, comment tonight, first of all, uh, it's it's wonderful to have Robert Blasiak here, who is an associate professor at the Stockholm Resilience Center at the University of Stockholm. Uh, He's a member of the Scientific and Expert Committee of the Ocean Climate Platform that I'm pretty sure this community calls the OCP, I suspect. Um, 
Uh, and he also co-leads the ocean, the human ocean research theme at uh, the Stockholm Resilience Centre at the University of Stockholm. Uh, after Robert, uh, Felipe Carvalho Raposo uh, will comment on the treaty. Felipe is a Brazilian diplomat located uh, at the Brazilian Embassy uh, in Berlin. Uh, Felipe, Felipe was part of the delegation uh, uh, to the Oceans Treaty from Brazil. He also coordinated in that role, he coordinated um, the, the, um, uh, the core Latin American countries, CLAM. Um, you're getting used to this now. Uh, after, after Felipe has spoken, uh, uh, Lowry Mai Griffiths uh, will speak. Uh, Lowry is the head of the Maritime Policy Unit at the UK's Foreign Office. Lowry was the head of the UK's delegation to the BBNJ Treaty. Uh, and Lowry is also a member of the UK's delegation to the International Seabed Authority, the ISA. Um, now, once uh, our three colleagues here in the room have spoken to us, we're also really privileged tonight to have a, uh, a comment on the treaty from Dr. Michael Kanyu. Uh, 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 Dr. Kanyu is uh, the ambassador and permanent representative uh, for the Republic of Sierra Leone uh, to the United Nations in New York. Uh, we had hoped he would be able to join us in person. That didn't quite work out, but we're really very grateful that he's going to join us uh, online to give his thoughts. Uh, Michael was the chair of the African group to the BBNJ Treaty. Um, and uh, Michael, Dr. Kanu, is also a visiting senior fellow here at LSE Law School. Okay, so those are the introductions. Without further ado, I will invite my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Tambasetti, to come and speak to us about the treaty. Thank you. Yes. for that introduction and also really for having the vision to bring us together um, to in this gathering and to celebrate the treaty. So I want to begin at the beginning with the primordial sea. For millennia we've known that vast expanses of water can have a profound psychological impact on us. The sea, Jung wrote, is an appropriate symbol of the collective unconscious because it hides unsuspected depths under a reflecting surface. Roger Deakin, the fanatical swimmer, is quoted in Ed Newell's book, The Sacramental Sea, as describing plunging into water and swimming as taking us back into our mother's womb. These amniotic waters are both utterly safe and yet terrifying, for at birth anything could, anything could go wrong. This may account for the anxieties every swimmer experiences in deep water. The swimmer experiences the terror and bliss of being born. The bliss and terror of being born. So 11 months and one day since the text of a new treaty to cover half of the Earth's biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction was agreed, this binary seems an apt metaphor for the liminal space we find ourselves in, as we await 60 countries' ratification before the treaty can enter into force. This is a meditative time, a time to understand the intent and purpose of the text. In anthropological terms, we all share in this liminality, standing at the threshold, where previous ways of structuring identity, collaboration, or community is receding and a new way is coming into view. 
Part of taking stock of what's in the treaty is about understanding how it got there. It will not have escaped your notice that our fantastic panel of discussants coming as they do from different parts of the world might have very different views on parts of the treaty and how it got there. From that sort of babel of contradictions and apparently incommensurable values emerged the treaty. And I find that a breathtaking achievement, a testament to what the world can do if we put our heart and soul into an endeavor. That's the bliss. The terror is that we might lose the opportunity to build on the gains we have made if we do not remain attuned to the processes that lead up to the text. Contradictions and conflicting viewpoints and negotiations can bleed into the legitimacy of the treaty, but it's also the case that such conflicts can trigger legal creativity and imagination. So I'm going to give you four binaries that help draw, us out, draw out both the fractious nature of the negotiations and the resolution of those contested viewpoints. To show how the treaty brings legal creativity to all problems in the governance of biodiversity. But first, the basics. Some of you will know that there are four pillars to the treaty. Area-based management tools, included, including marine protected areas. The treaty also provides for environmental impact assessments for high seas activities. <coughs> Number three, capacity building and technology transfer. This is often seen as a rather uninteresting lateral issue and one that is relatively easy to fulfill, which I would suggest is because our ambitions are too low. Capacity building and technology transfer remain central in the treaty negotiations and is an important element of the quid pro quo of setting up governance over a global commons. Technology transfer is not a freebie in this setup. It's fundamental to mitigating persistent inequality and of sharing in the progress that can be made from these technologies. But several questions remain. Will valuable technologies also be shared? Will private parties be made to comply with these provisions? Four, marine genetic resources. My favorite part of the treaty and easily the most contentious, although the two are not connected. It was contentious because it is here that the commons aspect clashes with the extraction of value. It is also a part of the treaty where key elements were brought to the negotiating table by developing countries. Is it relevant to say so? Well, yes, for at least two reasons. First, just as important as the formal legitimacy of the treaty, so is perception of legitimacy, as such perception invariably links up to efficacy of coordinated implementation. And second, usually developing countries in highly technical negotiations tend to focus on principles, the bigger picture, rather than get drawn into the technical weeds of the negotiations. This is largely a function, with all due respect, to one, a lack of expertise or lived commercial or technical experience, and two, an inability to agree internally because the large number of developing countries represent very different geopolitical interests. But the fact that the G77 and China group of 134 developing countries were able to pull together a coordinated position on one of the most technical issues of our <coughs> times shows that it can be done. And that is cause for hope. But it also requires us to study the conditions of that success so it can be replicated. So now I come to the binaries I promised you as a way to understand what's in the treaty and how it got there. My first binary is what was said and what was left unsaid. Um, in 1997, 
An influential essay proclaimed that biodiversity is dead. To explain that the term biodiversity was meaningless because of the ambiguity of the subject matter it refers to. For similar reasons, during the negotiations, it seemed that it was time to proclaim the death of genetic resources. Because these resources now exist in multiple synchronous forms of value that can be used, circulated and exploited in different ways such that the term does not begin to cover it all. Digital sequence information has long developed as the term capturing these new dematerialized forms of value. But this term has at least eight different meanings. So the treaty does not define the term, but you will find the term peppered, at least in part two of the treaty. The BBNG treaty, in using this term, acknowledges, in my view, at least three key elements. One, that the exploitation of digital sequence information should also lead to equitable benefit sharing. And that if there's any money to be made, and there almost certainly is, it ought to be shared. Two, the lack of agreement on definition need not be an impediment to benefit sharing. And three, irrespective of the institutional context or the informational context, digital sequence information must respond to open and responsible data governance. My second point under what was said and unsaid is about intellectual property. Perhaps no phrase chills a public international lawyer like the term no text. The BBNJ Treaty does not have text on intellectual property, despite a version of it being in the draft treaty up until August 2022. Simply opting for no text does not magic away the issues of control of resources raised by such rights. Here it's worth considering whether other elements in part two, such as the identifier attached to genetic samples, which I'll come to in just a minute, the obligation to report on publications, products, and patents mitigates some of the damage of no text on intellectual property as far as the developing world is concerned. My second binary is the new and the old. And this is the difference between status quo positions that benefit those who, have, who already have the upper hand and the new legal imagination needed to resolve things in a different way. Here are two different points. Actually, I'm going to just refer to one point of departure in the treaty that, in my view, is of very great importance. And the, the first is the juxtaposition of the freedom of marine scientific research and the common heritage of humankind, which sits side by side in Article 7 of the treaty. For a really long time, we have not been able to resolve politically and legally how a freedom of the high seas, including the freedom to exploit, can coexist with the commons. Is a scientist in his enjoyment of the freedom free to take, own, commercialize, even monopolize the resources? Is a private company? The commons usually does not mean an absence of ownership, but can facilitate a surfeit of different shades of ownership, including intellectual property. I argue in a recent paper that we must see freedom of marine scientific research as an activity that is tethered to a source, to a resource genetic resources that can exist in many forms. If we regard the commons as only extending to biodiversity that is physically present in areas beyond national jurisdiction and infinitely replenishable, we miss all the ways in which intellectual property monopolies curtail technological prospects for future scientists. And this is why the commons element must extend to all forms in which the resource exists. A freedom without such a principle tethering of the commons resource would make it a free-for-all. 
Avoiding this is a strong normative basis for benefit-sharing obligations in the treaty. And this is also why we are best not to refer to this as the High Seas Treaty. Because the use of frontier language that recalls adventure and prospecting also implies a diminishing of common heritage. The areas beyond national jurisdiction are not simply the next frontier of extraction, so the name matters. My third binary is that of an undivided ecology and the cutting machinery of the law. In a 2020 report on the ocean genome, which I co-authored with Robert for the high-level oceans panel, we defined the ocean genome as the ensemble of genetic material present in all marine biodiversity, including both the physical genes and the information that they code for. In contrast to this holistic definition, the law runs the ocean genome through a cutting machinery of cuts, hierarchies, and erasures. Biodiversity under sovereign authority comes under a different treaty. There are different ownership implications for physical samples and sequence information. There may be regional agreements and understandings that fragment the ocean genome as a resource even more. And then there is a different worldview on biodiversity that indigenous people and local communities bring. Here I'm grateful to my colleague Murray Petersman for drawing my attention to the following evocative point about using our legal imagination to protect animals. In EU law, in order to protect the wolf, which may stray across different countries' protected and non-protected territories, a concept of terrestriality rather than territoriality is developed, where the obligation to protect the wolf follows the wolf, not the territories. I believe we achieved something similarly remarkable in the BBNG agreement. And this is the standardized uniform batch identifier. This is very unusual terminology for treaty language. And it provides a techno fix for a long-standing problem in international biodiversity governance. That is identifying where a genetic resource is from. If implemented well, it will be a machine and human-readable identifier based on existing information systems that attaches itself to genetic resources, both samples and sequence information. Once established, it will have a cascading effect, a long tailback. It ought to, at least, making both monetary and non-monetary benefit sharing possible. Momentous as that is, its significance is greater than that. The batch identifier is a tool for governance, and when established, should enable data and analytics through which we can monitor and assess not just many marine genetic usage, but also the achievement of treaty objectives like technology transfer and capacity building. Legally, the batch identifier does at least four different things. It removes the need for separate treatment of physical and sequence, uh, as physical samples and sequences. It makes possible the monitoring of open, responsible data governance. And when implemented well, it will help distinguish between resources that fall under the conventional biological diversity and the BBNJ regimes. And critically, it should make it possible for private companies to have certainty when using marine genetic resources from areas beyond national jurisdiction. So you could say the batch identifier in the treaty conquers the cutting machinery of the law. My final binary is the acoustics of the process. Who is heard and who is absent from the process? The BBNG Treaty requires decentralized coordination to encourage convergent implementation. 
We know that such compliance models often raise the possibility of non-traditional decision-making groups. Such non-traditional groups can include international scientists or advocates for open governance of data or legal scholars with strong normative views on biodiversity governance. The treaty process, I believe, consolidated the influence of non-traditional decision-makers in this process. Scientists, powerful NGOs, often working on conservation issues with a strong global north presence. Such groups led on interpretations and in turn were in a position to influence governments to bring about coordinated action internationally. I might even say we saw the growth of the scientist statesmen traveling and speaking about the demands of science, which is presented as neutral. Because who can possibly oppose the progress of science, right? In venues outside of negotiations where ideas were formed and tested, in my view, there were, there were never enough experts speaking on behalf of developing country interests. And science is not entirely benign. What kind of science gets funded? Who benefits? Who participates? Who does not? These are all decisions that at each stage is open to capture by elites. Elites who already benefit from the current political structure of marine scientific research. We might look across the room today and believe that the pandemic is behind us. But we learned important lessons during this time on how hard it is to transfer valuable science-based technologies, lessons that must endure. Here I want to acknowledge the efforts of mRNA scientists working on vaccine technology at AFRIGEN in South Africa to produce vaccines for the global south. They have stretched the limits of what can be done under international intellectual property laws to create a hub-and-spoke mode of dissemination of technology with 15 developing countries, which looks like it's on the path to being truly transformative. It's a testament to the epistemic and therefore political power that groups of scientists hold in highly technical transnational contexts. My final point on acoustics is that the BBNJ is a nimble and modern treaty that ought to set the trend in terms of legal standards and the data analytics capabilities it could provide. We must advocate for how this well-formed treaty contributes to other fora, like the Convention on Biological Diversity. The Convention on Biological Diversity must not be allowed to relitigate issues when we don't need to, and where it would be a disservice to the goodwill and legal creativity of the BBNJ treaty makers. To conclude, I started at the beginning with the bliss of the birth of a new treaty and the terror of unfulfilled promise. I believe we can all take a shared responsibility here. You can play a part by staying interested and keeping an eye on what your government is doing. If you're a scientist in the global north, you can push for meaningful capacity building and fair technology transfer, as many are already doing. We can continue interdisciplinary conversations across geographies as we begin to set up treaty bodies. And we're going to need to better understand unconventional accounting mechanisms for the valuation of biodiversity. And all of this, of course, is pointing to the indispensability of universities like the LSE and its experts. My colleague Gary Simpson says in his book, The Sentimental Life of International Law, that international law has been killed off a thousand times. It has been disinterred and critiqued to an inch of its life. Instead of focusing on all the familiar ways in which international law does not do what it says on the tin, 
and following his cue, I suggest that the treaty does uncover for us an unfamiliar liveliness in international law, an unfamiliar liveliness and an emancipatory program of work that is worth amplifying and working towards. Thank you. Thank you, Shiva. That was, that was wonderful. Robert, can I invite you to give your comments? Thank you. Good evening, everyone. And uh, so nice to come after you, Shiva, and uh, Professor Kershaw as well, because I, I think now you already realize that something big happened, something important. Uh, I'm going to show you some pictures that try to drive that through. If I get the clicker, there we go. Why it matters. It really matters. I believe it does. I'm going to try to convince you, too. Um, I have three points today. The first is why it's so important that the international community is still working on ocean governance. Why does it matter so much now? And first of all, I'll show you a map. So what Shiva has been talking about in today is that dark blue part. It's about 47% of the Earth's surface, about two-thirds of the ocean. Um, and on average, it's about four kilometers deep. This treaty closes governance gaps for all of that about half the world. So it's front page news. Um, and it's the place where we want to see, well, people see frontiers. She was, I think, kind of waving her finger at me a little bit maybe, but uh, it is seen as a frontier. The ocean economy, a place of growth, a place of aspirations where all of these countries around the world can be involved. Um, and in its kind of best, most aspirational form, it creates a blue economy which is described as an economy based on the sustainable use of ocean resources to promote economic growth, social inclusion, and the preservation or improvement of livelihoods. A perfect world, all the best stuff. Um, right now, the blue economy is estimated to be valued around 1.5 trillion US dollars. It's projected to double by the end of this decade. Um, and where is it happening? Well, it's happening everywhere, all at once. Um, every, what's the other word in that the movie title? I can't get it now, but someone else can uh, fill it in later. But, but look just for instance here, on the bottom row, the second graphic, this is the growth of offshore wind over the past 50 years. And you'll see it's experienced just in the past 20 years over 51,000% growth. Basically, it's a brand new industry in the ocean space. But you see the same trend all over the ocean space, these hockey stick curves of accelerating use of the ocean, all happening simultaneously in the same ocean. There's not another one, there's just one, and we're all using it. Um, and it's not just the coastal areas. So this is an example. You, if you look more closely at those hockey stick curves, you'll see more interesting trends. So this is just for offshore oil and, um, uh, and natural gas extraction. So we see first the trend line at the top for shallow water extraction. This is uh, wells that are at 125 meters or less depth. Um, and you see it, it expanded rapidly in the 60s and 70s, leveled off by the 2000s, maybe even a slight decrease now. But then as that becomes to saturation, then it moves further offshore. So now deep sea uh, increased rapidly in the 80s to the 2000s, peaking maybe around 2005, starting to decrease. And now we're going ultra deep. This is the really risky place to have oil platforms and, uh, and extraction. And this is now increasing as well. So the ocean, it's a big place way out there, but it's increasingly within reach for lots of industries. And there's a question also, so the BB&J agreement, is it going to shape the future of a blue economy? 
And would come with greater equity, justice, and inclusion, or does it just come with more dollars and pounds and cents? So there's the first point. The second point is the United Nations. We all think of the United Nations as kind of like a slug, slowly moving to react to the world. That's kind of unfair. I mean, it's, sometimes it's like that. But how does it deal with something like marine genetic resources, Achieva's favorite piece of the treaty, mine as well? Um, I'm going to give you an example. Based on my dinner about three months ago, I was in Busan in South Korea. And this was served to us. And I want to zero in on this one here. So I asked the waiter, what is that? And the waiter said, that's jokgal. And then I got really excited because this is a legendary food in South Korea. It's a, a fermented dish. And it's been a central piece of bioprospecting for years now because there are all sorts of interesting bacteria that form the ferments that make it so tasty. And it's done differently in different regions of South Korea so that everyone tastes different. And so they're always finding new species from uh, studying it. So you don't have to go out in the middle of the ocean to find something new. You can just look on my dinner plate. Um, and this is what, not literally, but this is what kind of this group did 24 years ago. A Korean group uh, identified a new bacterium and they named it after Jotgal, Bacillus Jotgali, I'd, uh, isolated from Jotgal. So they found it maybe at the supermarket. And then they sequenced it and then they put that genetic sequence information in international repositories so that uh, scientists around the world could also understand, have I just found some of that or is it something else? Maybe they're related. Um, and that's what's happened. So over this past 20 years, just think for a moment, where have we found Bacillus Jotgali? Well, it was found in mud in a mangrove swamp off the coast of China. It was also found on a sample from a 3,000-year-old mummy in Egypt. And it was also found in a hydrothermal vent in the Pacific Ocean in areas beyond national jurisdiction. The same species, different strains of the same bacteria. But this is the sort of thing where you think, well, how do you regulate this? And this is where Shiva's example of the batch identifier is very exciting. It's a very innovative way to deal with something like this. Um, and this also, there's intellectual property here as well. So this Chinese group <coughs> used the strain from the Hainan province, from the mud sample. And they've uh, gotten a patent granted that's using this also for bioremediation, for cleaning up highly polluted waterways. So maybe a success story, some good news there. Um, but in the big picture, what is the opposite of the UN? This is the opposite of the UN. Let me tell you what these two panels are. So on the left, we have the cost per raw megabase of DNA for sequencing. So around 2001, it cost about $6,000 to sequence a megabase of DNA. By 2019, that had fallen by, or this is an exponential graph, by the way, it had fallen by about five or six orders of magnitude from about $6,000 to about one cent. So that meant suddenly we're able to sequence everything everywhere. We've got massive uh, repositories of genetic sequence data and that's what is on the right hand side here. That exponential increase doubling in size roughly every 18 months for the last 30 years. These big databases of genetic sequence information. So this then is also a great repository for people working wherever, at pharmaceutical companies or wherever else, you want to think, well, what's the next great product I can de de develop? This is going to help them. So that was the second. The final one, I'm going to argue it's really, really important that this agreement, it's been negotiated, it's been agreed, 
It's been signed by a bunch of countries, but it isn't entered into force yet, and it's important that it does. So this is the moment when the president of the BBNJ uh, negotiations uh, got the agreement over the line. It was agreed by the parties. It's a massive achievement for multilateralism. Um, and this is the language that we need to look at closely now, which it enters into force 120 days after the date of deposit of the 60th instrument of ratification, approval, acceptance, or accession. Um, so some people are saying they, they hope it will enter into force by 2025. I'm among those, I hope so as well. I'm very skeptical of that. Um, to date, 86 countries have signed the agreement. That's not legally binding, but it's a statement of intent. One country has ratified, a second, that's Palau, a second country, Chile, has also voted to ratify. They haven't uh, formally uh, ratified yet. So soon, too. Um, but what can we learn if we look at other recent multilateral environmental agreements? Every single one of these is different. So this next slide, full disclosure, People say, well, are you comparing apples and oranges? This next slide is comparing apples and oranges and bananas and strawberries and 32 other fruits. But they're all fruits, so I think there's some value in it. These are multilateral environmental agreements from the past 50 years. The first dot, the one on the left for each of these, is the date that it opened for signature. The one on the right is the date when it entered into force. And uh, each of these is different. Um, but generally, this says something about the length of time it takes, the lag between signing and entry into force. Uh, the average time across all of these was about 1,600 days, and the average time for ocean-related ones, so ones that are primarily focused on the ocean, was substantially longer. I don't know quite why that is. I'd love to pick brains of legal scholars on this, but that was closer to 3,000 days. Uh, that would be a disaster if that's the outcome here, because the status quo, so if you use those same averages, that would mean the BBNJ agreement would enter into force in 2028, or maybe even in the next decade, in 2031, if it follows the path of other ocean-related ones. Um, and some of the mechanisms of the BBNJ agreement, as Shiva was saying, there's no text on some of them. Some things are still TBD. Um, and, uh, one of the things, and I'll just make it really specific now, it's my final example. The international community is committed to protecting 30% of the ocean by 2030. And this is basically impossible without the BBNJ agreement coming into force. Because um, only 36% of the ocean is within national jurisdiction, so you'd have to basically protect all of it if you want to meet that target without the BBNJ agreement. With it, you have a better chance. But uh, after entry into force, this is just, this could be a longer list, but these are procedural steps that would have to happen after it enters into force for an MPA, a marine protected area, to enter into force. So there'd be a convening of the conference of the parties within one year, so that could be another year added on. You have to agree how to set up a scientific and technical body. You'd have to agree on selection of those members. Someone would have to submit a proposal for the MPA. It would have to be reviewed by that body. Some time-bound consultation period would have to be set up with states and relevant bodies. It would have to be revised, a new recommendation set, dot, 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 dot. And finally, at the end, if everyone agrees, then it would become binding another 120 days later. So if we want to meet this target by 2030, then basically, if states have signed up for that, then they've signed up for the BBNJ treaty as well. So they need to get on track with ratifying as soon as possible. So I'll leave with that. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Robert. That's so interesting. Felipe, can I invite you to give your comments? Good evening. I came to uh, present a few contributions from the perspective of the Brazilian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about the process of negotiating this, uh, this agreement in New York, in the United Nations. Then I'll talk a little bit about what has been achieved by the states. And finally, what are the perspectives thinking about the future? When we talk about the procedures, the process uh, for negotiating this agreement, we can try to understand the process under four different levels, which would be first the national level, when states, they establish their national positions to be supported in the UN. Then we have the regional level, then we have the cross-regional level, then we have the global or the multilateral level. Uh, the first level, the national, is probably one of the most difficult, and it, it uh, comes before the negotiating uh, itself in the UN. Country states, they have different and complex uh, interests within themselves. We have countries, of course, with many uh, environmental concerns about the marine biodiversity, about the oceans, about waters uh, under national jurisdiction, about waters beyond national jurisdictions. But also we have uh, industries like the pharmaceutical industry, like the chemical industry. We have fishing industry, which is very important in Brazil and in many other countries with a large uh, maritime coast. We have uh, states that have oil companies, which is also uh, the case of Brazil and many others. We have uh, mining companies. We have scientific and research institutions that, of course, they can uh, do a lot of studies with marine genetic resources, but also with uh, mineral resources that are in the continental shelf under the sea. We have national security concerns. Of course, the Navy of the states, uh, they have a lot of concerns that what could, uh, how could an international agreement damage, uh, represent some kind of damage to that, uh, to that state. So there are different uh, concerns, different interests that need to be taken into account when a state establish a national position to be taken to the UN. And that's just the first national uh, level. Once we have a national uh, position, a national uh, idea of what we want to be settled in that agreement, then we, talk, we start to talk with our partners. Uh, in the case of Brazil, we talk with Latin American countries first. We talk to Argentina, we talk to Uruguay, we go to the whole Latin America, Mexico, and try to uh, establish what would be a regional position. And of course, that takes uh, a lot of time, that takes a lot of uh, conversation, a lot of meetings, both uh, online meetings, both, uh, but also personal meetings. Uh, and states, even if they are neighboring countries, uh, most likely they will have different interests as well. So it's very difficult to, to have a common position, a common ground in all of the aspects of the, of the agreement. But then we have, we're, we're able to have a, a regional position in the case of uh, CLAM, which is the core Latin American countries. Other regional groups, of course, they do the same. The Caribbean countries have their own group. The African uh, group, the African states, they have their, their regional position, coordinating positions. Uh, European Union, of course, it's uh, a, a nice example as well. We have the Pacific uh, Islands, uh, developing islands in the Pacific, just to mention a few groups. Then we go to the third level, which would be the cross-regional 
coordination. Once we have these regional positions uh, about what should be the agreement, then we start to put the groups together in the same room in order to negotiate a common language. So we have Latin American countries speaking with Caribbean countries, speaking with uh, African countries, speaking with European countries, speaking with uh, Asian Pacific countries, and then uh, we try to get some common ground. Things are getting complex, and it's getting difficult to find uh, a common language because each stage, as I mentioned, has their own different and uh, conflicting interests between themselves. But then we need to take that to the UN, to the multilateral level, which would be the fourth and last level, which would be the text of the agreement, the, the consensus, the common language that will be defined as the final text of the agreement itself. Uh, it is important to mention that during the negotiations of the BBNJ Treaty, uh, it was a very inclusive process. We had many NGOs participating in the meetings, providing technical news and information for the delegates. Uh, we had many uh, researchers, we have even companies participating uh, with technical information as well. We had uh, universities participating directly or indirectly. Uh, we had uh, advisors, each of the national delegations or the regional groups had their own uh, advisors in order to provide some useful and technical information as well. And what was achieved? We had the BBNG agreement. It is a legal uh, framework. It's not uh, enforced yet, but it provides uh, the mechanism, the legal uh, provision so that protected areas can be established in the high seas. We have the legal framework so that capacity building uh, can provide more, more knowledge uh, for developing states. We have the legal framework so that the transfer of marine technology uh, can be actually uh, provided uh, in order to enable developing states to make their own scientific research in the high seas. Uh, we have uh, a legal framework for the research of marine genetic resources uh, and many provisions talking about scientific cooperation between developed and developing states, which is very nice uh, in the paper. It was, of course, a major achievement. Some people say that it was uh, the major international agreement uh, adopted since the Paris Agreement on Climate Change a decade ago, but it is only the legal framework so far. It is important, it is a very uh, important diplomatic achievement, but now it needs to be, first, it needs to enter into force. As Professor Robert mentioned, we need at least 60 ratifications. So far we have it only one. In the next probably few days or few weeks, we'll have two ratifications, but that will take a while. After those 60 ratifications, and we expect even more, because the more multilateral, the more uh, global uh, participation, of course, this agreement will be more effective. But after the entry into force, we also need compliance. We need states, companies, research institutions to comply with uh, the provisions that were negotiated and settled under the United Nations uh, framework. We also need, and that is very important, financing. There is nothing that can be done in terms of marine protected areas or in terms of capacity building, scientific uh, cooperation, uh, transfer of technology, all of those provisions of the agreement, they need money, they need financial resources to be uh, more effective, to be implemented. 
And we do have a lot of provisions about financing in the agreement, but that is, as I mentioned, only the legal framework. We still need uh, some greater commitments from states, uh, donations, uh, even companies, institutions, uh, in order to uh, provide for some funding for this agreement to be effective in the future. I do have some uh, concerns, and now already uh, going to the to the end of the presentation. As a diplomat, and right now based uh, in Europe, specifically in Berlin, Germany, I am very concerned about some geopolitical uh, challenges and some geopolitical uh, conflicts that are happening that have always happening, of course, but that are happening right now. For instance, the crisis in the Red Sea, for instance, uh, the war in Ukraine, for instance, uh, the war in the Gaza Strip, beyond many other uh, international and national conflicts that are undergoing in the international community. And also, we have some domestic concerns all over the world, countries with uh, inflation, countries with uh, economic recession, countries with many other, let's say, priorities that sometimes could distort the importance that we should uh, give to the environment, to the protection of the environment, in particular the protection, preservation of the marine biodiversity, and that goes back to the BBNG agreement. Let's hope, and of course we count on the civil society, we count on NGOs, we count on students, researchers, uh, scientific institutions, uh, so that the press, all actors that should be involved in order to make uh, not only pressure, but also to provide technical and useful information so that states and governments can make uh, the right decisions in order to put money on where it should be put. And that should be about protecting our uh, biodiversity, including uh, in the high seas, and that goes back to the BBNG agreement. Thank you very much. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you so much, Philippe. It's just listening to you there and the, the complex, generating something so complex, something so detailed with so many different interests and groups. It's just quite astonishing, quite amazing. So thank you. Uh, Laurie, can I invite you to give your comments? Thank you. Thank you, David. And first of all, thank you to the LSE Law School for the invitation. And um, just kudos to Shiva for all of the work that she did um, during the negotiations. Uh, I'm really happy with the title of tonight, I mean, Ocean Without an S, but a win for multilateralism. That is absolutely the way the UK views the BBNJ agree agreement. Um, it is what the Foreign Secretary said about it in his speech on multilateralism at Mansion House, which was given very shortly after the adoption of the agreement at the UN in June of last year. Um, so that's very much how we view this. And I think uh, Felipe has given a very good explanation of the complexity of getting there. I mean, I would note, of course, at one point, 
During the process I've been involved since 2016, uh, the UK was no longer part of a regional group in the same formal way that we had been, but we did work very closely with our partners um, in the developed world, global north, however you want to frame that, um, in particular on uh, the MGR provisions, and also very closely with partners um, in the global south, in the developing world, across the piece. Because I completely agree with the points that Robert made, that the BBNJ agreement is also critical for delivering some of our other major international commitments. So it is critical to deliver um, the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. It's also going to be critical to trying to achieve SDG 14 because it is about the conservation and sustainable use of the over two thirds of the global ocean that lies beyond national jurisdiction. And I think that the fact that we achieved agreement uh, is to be lauded in difficult times. And it was difficult, times were difficult back then, and Felipe's explained times have not got easier now, but I think it was greater than some of us had maybe expected given the climate. Um, and there's no doubt that these were difficult negotiations. There were differences of views on some critical issues between the global north and the global south. Um, and certainly I had some very uh, difficult conversations with both Felipe and Michael, who'll join us online shortly in the early hours of the morning at the UN on how we were going to deal with benefit sharing um, and for marine genetic resources. Um, but we got there, and I think we got there because the ocean space at the multilateral level is maybe uniquely friendly as a space, even though we all come with different perspectives. It was always done with respect. Um, and also, although COVID was seen as a really terrible blow to the process, the hope was that we would have this done by 2020, then COVID happens and everything comes to a grinding halt in terms of negotiations. What we did manage to do, and thanks again to another LSE alum, um, Gina Tori, um, who's the director of the International Centre for um, Dialogue um, and um, Peace Building, and with the support of the governments of Belgium, Monaco, Costa Rica, and the High Seas Alliance, they put on track 1.5, so not formal, nothing is attributed to anybody, conversations online. And we started to think through, okay, if we're going to do, it, do this, where are the possible points of convergence? Not yet consensus, because nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, but it gave us a space in which to have maybe more open conversations than sometimes happen when you're in those formal negotiations. So for me, it was that relationship building was critical so that even when things got really tense and it was three o'clock in the morning and we hadn't slept properly, we could push through this. And I also think there was a, at the heart of it, a shared uh, endeavor here that everybody wanted to get to the point where we had an agreement. So there was a willingness to find ways to get over the line. So looking forward, it is also equally important that the agreement moves forward as a global endeavor. 
Um, and we very much congratulate Palau on being the first to ratify. From a UK perspective, as a dualist country, we are going to need some domestic legislation in order to implement our obligations. This is particularly around uh, marine genetic resources and how we manage uh, the system that has been put in place to ensure the sharing of benefits under that regime. So we had an event yesterday at the Foreign Office uh, with some key stakeholders from both the academic scientific community, but also from industry, from the museums and the collections to talk about how practically are we going to do this? How are we going to live up to the obligations that we have signed up to in domestic legislation? How are we as a government going to track that everybody is doing that properly? So we are genuinely working on working through what that legislation um, will look like because there is um, an ambition for it to, um, to have city ratifications, I think, by the UN Ocean Conference in Nice in June of 2025. Um, that is a great ambition, um, and we, that we, we hear the call for that to happen. Everybody has their domestic process to go through, and we are getting on with our job. But we're also keen to help support our international partners in their implementation and ratification as well. I am in the privileged position of being able to have recruited some more staff to help with domestic implementation. That is not the case for many of my colleagues um, in other negotiating teams. So we've already started, we're working with the Commonwealth Secretariat on a programme that will uh, look to support um, Commonwealth member states with their um, implementing legislation where they need it and, and to address other things. We are reaching out to other partner organisations to understand where the UK might be able to help because I think the other important thing, and it is embedded in the capacity building chapter of the BBNJ agreement, is this is about meeting identified needs as well. It is not about a country like the UK just coming along saying, you will get this money to do the thing I want you to do. It's about us understanding what the needs are and then how we can best help um, deliver and, and, and meet those needs. We're also very committed to engaging positively in the preparatory process at the UN level that we really hope will get going soon because I think Robert highlighted some of the many things that the first conference of the party will need to decide and we need a preparatory process to start to work through how, those, how thing, those things are going to work because what we don't want to do is get to that first conference of the party and then start working on all the things that it needs to decide. There needs to be a plan in place so it can get on with the actual meat of the work that it needs to deliver. We're also very conscious of the implications of the BB&J agreement for other ongoing international negotiations. And first of all, despite the climate and, and the flippers outlined, the point is we managed to do it. So I would say that also gives hope to other processes. There are ways to find answers and to find common ground. But there are a lot of places, um, the, CB, the Convention on Biological Diversity being one, looking at the issue of digital sequence information. And I think one of the key issues is finding a common way forward on that issue so that we don't have a whole load of different systems working to different standards, 
that one makes it actually difficult for industry and scientists to work with, but also risks opening up gaps and holes. So there are benefits, whichever way you come at that debate, there are benefits to some form of uniformity, recognising that we are dealing with slightly different regimes and that issues of sovereign rights over resources apply in the CBD negotiations. But I think it's also important to look at coherence across other issues. The capacity building chapter is a key pillar of the BBMJ agreement. I'm thinking about how we leverage that to deliver capacity building and technology transfer that answers kind of cross-cutting issues of ocean governance and ocean use. So it doesn't just it doesn't just get siloed into this is BBNJ, this is CBD. And I'll finish with saying that the ongoing engagement of the scientific community is going to be critical in this. They were critical in helping us um, form the agreement, in, in helping us find consensus. I, you know, BBNJ batch identifier, I didn't know what that was, but we had scientists in the room that could explain that to me and go, okay, that's something we can go along with. Now we need us to help. We need their help, and not just the traditional marine scientists, but people dealing with AI and big data to help us actually put that into practice in the way that's going to work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laurie. When you were when you were speaking, I think there's a degree of cynicism about multilateralism, right? We often hear our students propose solutions to global problems through multilateralism, and academics are often quite cynical, but there's real multilateral capital in this, that you did it, you achieved it. These cynical academics can no longer say it's not possible, so it's really fantastic. So, excellent. Michael has, has, has arrived on our screen. Uh, uh, good evening, Michael. Good, well, early afternoon for you. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, I will hand over for you for your, for your 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Excellent. So I would really would have loved to be there in person. Uh, definitely seen uh, Felipe, Lori, and certainly Siva. Uh, but uh, regrettably, I'm away. Um, demands of work. We live in a very difficult time, as uh, Felipe has alluded to. Um, and so we also have to resolve some of uh, the peace and security challenges we face, including to uh, the important um, treaty uh, which we concluded on BBNJ. Um, allow me at this um, uh, moment to really um, just firstly express appreciation to LSE Law and SIVA uh, for uh, keeping the momentum in the BBNJ process um, going. Given the comments that have been made, I intend to take a quick deep dive in part two of the marine genetic resources. Um, section of um, the treaty. Uh, this was uh, part of the treaty that, that um, really, really um, had deep interest from the African group. Um, and uh, for Lori, uh, this is not an attempt to really to get the issues, but rather to share perspective on this important component. Indeed, um, the conclusion of the negotiations um, has been hailed as a win for the ocean and multilateralism. This is true, and this is how we see it from the um, African perspective. However, I must say, at some point, um, the key questions um, for us were whether the views of, uh, firstly, the African member states were going to be reflected in the BBNJ agreement. Philippe has gone through um, the complexity in ensuring that um, we have coordination and views, um, you know, 
views to be expressed, but also uh, to be included in the agreement. And secondly, uh, what will be the benefits for uh, the continent, given that um, African states have limited access to and uh, really engage in limited activities um, in the high seas? During the negotiations, there were concerns that um, uh, developing states, including African states, would be foreclosed from accessing ocean resources, um, and a treating that we obligate states to adopt conservation measures. Um, and um, in such a treaty, um, if there is no um, fair and equitable sharing of benefits, then certainly it will lead to uh, unfairness. Uh, fortunately, the BBNG was able to address um, the concerns ensuring um, there was fairness, uh, but also um, the possibility to adopt conservation measures um, in that regard. But every um, such um, successful outcome was really hard fought for. Um, for example, the African group has been credited with playing a significant role in the negotiations, influencing some of um, its important substantive provisions relating to the inclusion of the common heritage of humankind principle um, and some of uh, the uh, benefits sharing mechanism within the marine genetics resources part. Uh, but as I indicated, um, it, it would have been difficult for there to be an agreement without the inclusion for fair and equitable sharing of benefits, particularly uh, monetary benefits. Two of um, the agreement covers uh, this uh, important marigenetic um, uh, resources part in the fair and equitable sharing of benefit. It eventually was shaped by the idea that uh, marine biological diversity of um, areas beyond national jurisdiction is part of the global common, and therefore the benefit uh, from the use of such resources must be shared in a fair and equitable way for all of humanity. The MGR's part of uh, the BBNG agreement, there was the many acronyms, was really robustly negotiated, and as I said, every move towards realizing fairness and equity in its provisions um, had one. But, you know, following the adoption of um, the BBNG agreement, and certainly uh, the signing of the agreement by a growing number of states, which has triggered the um, ratification movement, Evaluating the role of the agreement in addressing the biodiversity loss, the ocean and climate change crisis, in promoting the development of um, the law of the sea, and how to correctly understand, interpret, and implement its provisions really present the next pressing issues uh, for consideration. But since um, the, the core of um, the BBJ agreement is about uh, equity and fairness in the conservation and social use of uh, such resources, uh, let me spend some time, a few minutes, to really just talk along the lines of um, how we were able to make a stand for equity and fairness uh, in the MGRs part of the BBNG agreement. I have developed a hypothesis, and that is that um, the uh, BBNG agreement has rekindled hope for a healthy ocean, planet, and human life, and access to ocean resources must benefit humanity, and particularly a developing state. In, in looking at this critical part, it's made up of um, um, articles ranging from um, 9 to 16, uh, eight important articles. Um, but, but then um, there are several sub-paragraphs and sub-provisions um, uh, which really leads to a voluminous part of um, the treaty. 
and there's uh, nexus to the other parts of the treaty, but uh, I, I just want to reference Article 1, the use of time, which is important in the definition, the general objectives in, in Article 2, and um, exceptions in relation to carve out significant, to ensure that uh, we have a robust part 2 in Article, uh, and then 7, dealing with general principles and approach, and 52 on funding. Uh, to, to look at how we've been able to um, achieve uh, fairness in the BMJ Treaty and how it became a win for multilateralism, one has to examine the guiding principles and priorities. And on this, um, the recommendations to the uh, General Assembly on uh, the scope, parameters, and feasibility of um, international instrument under uh, the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea uh, stressed the need for a comprehensive global regime to better address the conservation and sustainable use of consistently referred to the need for uh, the conference to reach an agreement on a treaty that is effective, fair and implementable. This is um, important for the next steps. Um, if this were not achievable, certainly it would be very difficult to get um, countries to sign up. During the negotiations, um, the African group agreed with her and also noted it was important to also conclude a treaty not only that is effective, but it must be future-proof um, and this will aid the implementation. And, and the underlying aspect is that the BBNG agreement should be able to achieve its core objectives, so those two core objectives. Um, we were also um, able to emphasize the need towards uh, working on uh, ensuring that the, the agreement was fair, equitable, and certainly universal. And uh, as I said, it is a fact that uh, have limited access to the high seas and with even very limited direct activities relating to marine genetic resources. So when you put this in, in, in another way, um, and, and we value that the importance of a, a global and holistic framework for adopting conservation measures and ensuring equity in the sustainable use of ocean resources was underscored. Um, this is the um, the fairness, uh, um, which uh, the fairness principle, which really was a key uh, factor in the negotiations and consideration of the African group. In the negotiations, the African group identified a set of overarching priorities, and these priorities included the importance of preserving and ensuring equitable distribution of the benefits of um, the exploitation of um, the areas via national jurisdiction, while ensuring its sustainability. The group also insisted that um, the common heritage of humankind principle is essential from the basis of the governance of uh, uh, the geographical scope of um, the treaty, which is areas via national jurisdiction. The group therefore expressed its belief that uh, fear and equitable. Um, but it, it will be interesting to know how part two itself was shaped, and having heard from um, my two colleagues and uh, negotiator on how uh, national imperatives and, and priorities then transform into um, imperatives and priorities of groups. And you're looking at various um, um, groups and states with uh, different levels of development. Um, the, by the time we went to the last session, the concluding session of um, the BBNJ, we had uh, about two um, options uh, that were on the table dealing with um, marine genetic resources. But generally, on the models and the imperatives that shape part two of the BBNJ agreement, it should be noted that uh, substantively, 
there was a recognition of the need to address in a coherent and comprehensive manner biodiversity loss and degradation of ocean ecosystem. Concretely, the thrust of the negotiations in addition to conservation was about fairness, equity, and access to marine genetic resources and digital sequence information. Um, you may know this, there's a small number of states that have, do have access and capability to undertake um, activities in the high sea. And uh, this includes uh, research, bioprospecting, but also in terms of um, fishing, overfishing, um, and, and sometimes you can even refer to illegal, unimported, and unregulated fishing. And so to address all of this, um, we had to develop a model that will ensure that um, the um, main priorities and of having an effective and robust MGRs part was, 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 was met including the sharing of benefits, monetary benefits and non-monetary benefits. In terms of monetary benefits, we're looking at how uh, we were able to um, track and trace uh, to ensure where there's comm commercialization, then there is traceability, and that's where we ended up with uh, the batch identifier, which I'm sure would have time to, 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 to um, answer questions on. That was also an important pathway for um, an agreement to be reached. And the first is to ensure that uh, the marine genetic resources part was, was able to follow the development of the 15th uh, Conference of Parties on the Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, this was to ensure that there would be consistency, particularly in implementation. And I think uh, Laurie covered some of this, so I'll move on to some of uh, the important considerations for uh, the next steps. Um, in terms of um, the final outcome and key issues for implementation, it should firstly be said that um, the conclusion of the negotiation is certainly a win for the ocean and multilateralism. Incredibly, the solutions found were favorable to developing states on uh, marine genetic resources. Um, therefore, on the issue of uh, implementing key provision, I would rather say that um, the whole of part two is something which should be um, considered fully. Uh, it requires a great deal on state in terms of their obligations, but also it has the potential to ensure that um, there is fairness uh, in the implementation. If I were to conclude, and if we were to return to uh, the earlier claim that the Bibendia Agreement has a kind of hope for healthy ocean, planet, and human life, and access to ocean resources uh, benefiting um, uh, humankind, particularly developing states, in fighting hunger, poverty, and to foster social economic development, then uh, we must stay at holding that conclusive view depends a great deal on uh, the implementation, and this will then determine its real impact, the real impact of the treaty on uh, ocean people and the planet. A critical balance uh, was struck in the negotiation and hopefully in the operationalization, so through this ratification movement, but also in the preparatory work, which has been, uh, which has work been looked at at the General Assembly. There will be the same balance and uh, to ensure that there is legitimacy between the developed and developing states. It is uh, the belief that uh, through the BBNJ agreement, a fair foundation has been laid for treaty making. And um, with equity, fairness, and universality. And the hope is that um, this will not be unique, but one that will be representative um, of um, the future of international lawmaking. And um, I thank you again for um, the opportunity to, to share this uh, perspective. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Michael, and thank you so much for, for finding the time when I at an extremely busy time for you. I, I don't know. I hope you can stay for questions if you have a little bit more time. We'll be taking a, we'll have a, a short round robin conversation here at the front, and then we'll open up the conversation to the audience. So, um, so you've all talked about in different ways the probability of the treaty being ratified. So I've I've got a couple of connected questions on that and then we'll open it up to the audience. So, uh, so, so Robert, I think in particular, was, was perhaps more skeptical than, than the rest of you about the probability of the treaty being ratified. I, I, I just, first of all, I wonder what, what's the strategy here? How, how, how do we make this happen? And it must be, there must be some big wins, there must be some big countries that sign up to this. Who, who are they? How, what's the strategy to make this work? But then, connected to that, you know, I think as lawyers, you know, we can be quite formalist and we look at a document like this and we say it's a treaty and it has a clause that says you need 60 countries to ratify it before it comes into force. If you don't get that, well, it's not coming into force and we'll just move on. Now, that clearly isn't right here. This is the beginning of a very long process. And even if it's not ratified, it's still the beginning of a long process. So, so, so how does that long process look like? What's the next 5, 10, 15 years out from perhaps the non-ratification of the treaty? You don't, you don't all have to answer those questions, but maybe you see, see who, wants to, who wants to jump in first. Cool. No, but I think it's, it's kind of, you started the skepticism, so. Yeah, oh, I, I'm a skeptical <laughs> optimist or an optimistic skeptic, maybe. I'm not quite sure what combination, but uh, I, first of all, I'm in awe of the work that uh, Felipe and Lowry and others are doing, Michael, on, um, on forming this consensus. It's, it's such a thing to celebrate. and. Uh, this, the, the notion that it will take years, maybe longer than we are hoping, it, it's, it's not raising this to, to get people depressed. It's raising it to say, well, let's celebrate Palau. There's leadership. And Palau, for instance, also is co-chair of the high-level panel for the sustainable ocean economy. Wonderful that they're stepping up as leaders. Where are those other states that have identified as leaders have set themselves up and said, we are leaders? For the, for the world on ocean issues, where are they? Um, they should be close behind. And uh, it's a nudge. Of course, I'm not a government. I don't have a country behind me, and I don't have to figure out the, how to get this past all the ministries and all the lawyers that stand between um, today and the ratification. But, um, but as a scientist, sometimes you, you get that chance also to just give a gentle nudge with a, a little bit of extra pepper in it, just to say, please, get going with this. Uh, build on the wind. Don't let it ferment. Let's go. And I'm interested in that strategy about the wind. You know, so we have one country, possibly another one. Yeah. But, but what, what's the... Well, everyone must be thinking it. about this. What's the pathway? Oh, Larry, did you want to No, I, I think it, it comes back to a point that Michael made about not losing sight of what got us the agreement, and that point around fairness and equity and ensuring that that continues throughout implementation and ratification, that if, if countries feel that is somehow ebbing away, then reasonably why would they ratify? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they fought hard for certain things and that has to be seen to be reflected in how we put this into effect. I mean, I will say from a UK perspective, the agreement has Obviously, we have an election coming up at some point, but the agreement has cross-party support, so mm. we would, you know, hopefully that would not be 
the thing that slows us down, or we will do the work as quickly as we can, but it is about also doing it right, so we reflect the intent of those discussions in those rooms, what people were expecting come out of it. And then I think it's, it, it is about working together as the community that agreed this to figure out, okay, what are the first steps that we want the conference of the parties to take, and doing that together. So again, ensuring that everybody who was so important in getting the agreement of the line has a seat at the table to figure out, okay, if we're talking about area-based management tools, you know, what would be the priority areas? What are the interests involved in those? How are we going to support participation in that process? And so it, and the discussion we were having yesterday, it was on MGRs, marine genetic resources, and specifically the, the non-monetary benefit sharing. And um, people were talking about, it's not just saying, oh, this is the thing I offer. It's the building the environment in which those benefits are to be shared. And this is the time where we have the opportunity to start building that environment. Chibi, did you want to come in? Um, yeah, I could do. I, I think maybe as lawyers, we perhaps fetishize the law a bit too much. Um, so I would like to think <laughs> that there are groups of people uh, who could still not wait for the treaty to be ratified, but already implement those protocols and those practices that we know are going to come in, 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 that are going to be implemented. So, you know, what's stopping you now from, you know, looking at how your high seas activities are, uh, are impacting on the environment, mm. for instance, or what's stopping um, big universities from training PhD students to say, oh, you're going on a high seas cruise to collect marine genetic resources, here are some of the things that you should already be thinking about. So I think there is a treaty, there is a ratification, but as a, as a symbol of um, the will of the global community, um, I think we, should, we can start now. Right. Just let's get on with it. Yeah. Thank you. Felipe, then I want to bring Michael back in again, then we'll open it up to the, to the room. Felipe. I have just two elements from which we first, we need to respect internal procedures in countries. Especially in developing states, we have a lot of uh, a lot of need for human resources. We have a lot of bureaucratical uh, procedures that need to be respected, and this could take, of course, one, two, three, five years, depending on the state. Uh, that's very natural. That will happen, but it might take a while. And second is that uh, people are getting aware of the agreement. It's still very unknown by most of the people. So as long as we have more events. Uh, spread the, uh, the, the content of the, the agreement, spread the importance of the agreement entering into force, then scientific community, uh, researchers, uh, even companies uh, and in states will be more interested, parliaments will be more interested in terms of approving uh, the text, and then we have soon 10 states having ratified it, and then we have 20, and then we have 50. I think it could create some momentum in the next few years. But we have to we need to uh, have a little bit of patience. Patience. <laughs> Thank you. Michael, I wanted to bring, bring you back in. Um, hopefully you can hear everything that, that was said. Yes, perhaps I'll just add uh, uh, some of uh, the actual examples of um, the strategies that are um, being uh, adopted. I'll give the example of um, um, ECOWAS. Um, we have been involved um, an ECOWAS workshop on ratification. 
this is to ensure that we keep the momentum um, and really there's enthusiasm to do this because of this realization that uh, this was a win for, for everyone um, and also the realization that we're dealing with one of um, the, the planetary crises because the BPNG is also linked to uh, the um, CBD, the Convention of Biological Diversity Process. We see interlinkages there and um, a lot of knowledge already around the subject. And the key question, at least from our perspective, will be resources. At the conclusion of the BPNG process, the EU, for example, uh, made an announcement of uh, providing financial resources to assist with um, the ratification. Uh, this is needed um, in, in the process. And I think Laurie also spoke about what the UK is doing in, in that regard to providing the same uh, process. It is uh, part of accessing that resources that has led to uh, the ECOWAS certification workshop. And now we do have a panel of experts that provide the same expertise um, to member states in ensuring that uh, they go through the ratification process. And Dualos, that's the Division of Motion um, Affairs and Odyssey at the United Nations, is also developing uh, model uh, ratification instruments to assist us in doing this. And uh, what LSE law has done and what you're doing is to ensure that we keep the momentum, and I think this will be a critical part. Um, whether we meet the NIS um, um, ambition or not, I think uh, there will be a lot of work and movement towards ratification. Thank you. And I, I love I love that Shiva though, right? It's, this, this, we can see this in formalistic terms, or we can see this as a set of ideas to produce a set of goals, and there are different pathways to doing that, and we should use that. So I love that. Now, let's open it up to the audience. Um, I need a microphone, please. I need two microphones. Um, hands up, please, if you have a question. We'll take we'll take one from the audience first, and then uh, Luke is control in control of the of the chat. So we'll take a couple of questions from from online as well. Uh, um, my, uh, my colleague, uh, Vila Hivart, the uh, microphone is yours when it comes to you. Hold on. Thank you very much for this fascinating discussion. Um, I've realized, actually, you know, treaty making is just like grant writing. You know, you just uh, so much work. You're so relieved when you get it, and then you realize, but well, actually, the work only just begins now, right? <laughs> so, um, I have two questions. Um, one is international relations, and the other is more legal technical, and you can choose which one or whether you, you want to answer either of them. Um, First, we've of course, you know, given the, the context and everything, we've heard a lot about kind of the intergovernmental re, uh, dynamics behind treaty making. But I was wondering also if you could tell us a little bit about how, how has the private sector reacted to this treaty? Have, um, have they been supportive or obstructive, or does it depend a little bit on, on where they're coming from? So, is there is there buy-in from the private sector, and especially those that are actually trying to, you know, fuel the, the blue economy um, for this treaty? So that's the more international relations side. And then, on the legal technical side, I was just wondering because I know the in the Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, where you have sort of resource governance arrangements under the Nagoya Protocol, and it's actually not that dissimilar, uh, dis, uh, not that dissimilar dynamic that we see happening uh, under the Paris Agreement in Article 6.4 on basically, you know, the establishment of carbon credits, is that 
a tricky aspect is that you, you set up all these kind of governance rules for fair and equitable benefit sharing, for kind of markets to be fairly established, but that also makes the, the process a bit slow and cumbersome and formalistic. And what we've seen happening um, in uh, the biodiversity context is that actually a lot of states sort of bypass the, the Nagoya Protocol and make arrangements informally and just not register on them under the Nagoya Protocol. And similarly, under the Paris Agreement, we see voluntary carbon markets developing um, and sort of not waiting for the Article 6.4 mechanisms to actually be fully implemented, which will maybe only happen in a couple of years from now. So I was wondering whether that has been thought of and whether under the Ocean Treaty, there's actually, has that been thought of and, and uh, could this also happen under the Ocean Treaty or will that be avoided? Because it does create a number of complexities. Take that sure. first. Um, so, I, thank you. Well, I think the, the I'll give an answer that connects the two questions, if I may. I think um, a lot of people uh, regret the structure of the Nagoya Protocol, and you're right that it was slow, cumbersome, and burdensome, and therefore there has been a ghost in the BBNJ treaty negotiations which is the regulatory burdens that come off the back of the Nagoya Protocol. And I think, you know, whether we like it or not, what went wrong in that process was, has always been there, from my point of view, in the negotiations. So the desire to not go there again is very strong, uh, which is why I think tools like the Batch Identifier, Data Analytics, uh, I think we have enough language uh, that we can amplify other ways of doing things. And I, I love the fact that Laurie brought in um, AI, for instance. We have the tools to do this differently. Uh, in terms of private companies, I hope because the BBNG has this sort of uh, tabula rasa of not having sovereign rights, um, it's possible for companies to have a, you know, to sort of take an interest in the framework and look at the framework as giving them more certainty in terms of their activities. Um, so that's the hope. Whether this will turn out to be a race to the bottom of regulatory burdens is yet to be seen, but I hope not. Thank you. Larry? And, and just to jump in, and I won't pretend to have any genuine knowledge of, of um, the Paris Agreement arrangements, um, but I think the difference, of course, is Nagoya, because you're dealing with sovereign resources, left it to each state to decide one whether to have an access regime. The UK doesn't have an access regime. And then how that would work. So you end up with the complexity of the multiplicity of regimes. The difference here is there is a regime. There is one regime and it should, if done properly, apply uniformly or across every party to the agreement. Um, so I think that's a key difference, is that, that this is the regime for areas beyond national jurisdiction for the marine genetic resources. Um, I think in terms of the private sector, as I said, we, we were talking to them yesterday. Uh, as ever, the key issue is certainly for in, as we implement it is clarity. Um, 
No private sector company is going to tell you they love more regulation. <laughs> but at the end of the day, is it clear? Do they know what they're doing? Do they know what they're getting into? Do they understand how to build that into their model? Is my understanding of the drivers of their engagement? Thank you, Louis. So, so we haven't got so much longer. So if it's okay with you, the panelists, I'll just I'll get in another question or two. Uh, Luke, as Two very good questions from the online audience. So the first is from Julian Jackson from the Pew Charitable Trusts. And he asks, do you see the obligations on states who have signed the treaty already having an impact on their behavior, for example, in other ocean fora? First question. Second question then, person has not given a name, but the question is, could bad faith actors misuse the batch identify process in some ways? So presumably a company might, or a company representative might find some biological material and not use the batch identifier, because obviously if you don't use it, then you don't have the connecting way to trace back the use of it. So two very good questions, I think, from online. Thank you, Luke. Um, M Michael, could I maybe bring you in first as you're, you're online and then we'll come back to, to uh, the other panellists. The fact that um, they've either signed the BBNJ and they intend to implement is influencing uh, the behaviour in um, other ocean-related fora. Um, and this not, does not necessarily mean that um, the, the actions in, in the other uh, intergovernmental bodies is something which had been um, negative, but rather it was it's really to follow what um, we we, see, we sought to achieve in the BBNG, which is um, coherence and complementarity. And we see that now um, being pursued, and the hope is that um, eventually we're able to achieve that across um, the various intergovernmental uh, bodies that we have and the various sectoral bodies that we have, and, and that's one of the uh, important aspects of BBNG. There was always a fear that um, um, because of the regulatory regime which would, would agree to in part two, there's a possibility that um, there could be non-compliance and compliance that is done on the basis of bad faith. Uh, but the bad identifier was the compromise which were, was able to bring both the developed and developing states together. Of course, there was um, the um, urge and call for, to, for us to have a robust system, but that would have, um, in a way, increased. And we go back to the previous question, the question of burden, would that uh, really impose a lot of burden on um, researchers, particularly for researchers in academia, not necessarily in private sector. And so we had to find that balance. And so throughout the BBNJ, we see this tension. And what we have done, or what we did as negotiators, is to find a balance that could work for academia, scientific research, and for those who get into um, commercial um, um, utilization of MGRs and, um, and find a way of um, um, traceability and the batch identifier was um, the best we could come up with. Thank you. Colleagues, any other thoughts on those two questions? I have one thought on the first question. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, according to the, convention, uh, to the Vienna Convention on the Treaty of the Law of the Treaties, uh, states that sign the agreement, they are shaped somehow in their behavior because they cannot act against the purposes of the agreement they had just signed. So even though it's not a binding signature until the ratification uh, gets uh, approved, gets uh, done, 
yes, the signature should, by law, by the, by, by the convention, should shape somehow the behavior of this state. But uh, I don't foresee any states that have signed specifically not complying, let's say, provisionally to the agreement. But we should uh, take a look at it more with caution. Thank you for your time. Can I? Coming on the batch identifier and the bad act. Robert? You, you, you come in oh, first, please. then I'll bring Robert in after that. Okay. Um, sorry, I didn't see that. Um, so just very quickly with the batch identifier and bad faith actors uh, using or not using it. Um, again, I think nobody knows what the batch identifier really is. I think we have very exciting language in the treaty. Um, if you don't use the batch identifier, you actually fall in a very cumbersome regulatory system, which is the Nagoya Protocol. So if you don't want to go down that slow, cumbersome, burdensome uh, pathway, then you use the batch identifier. So in some way, that should be an incentive against misuse or non-use of it. Um, and just second, um, as it was designed or, you know, as it was spoken about outside of the treaty rooms, if you, the negotiating rooms, if you like, it was supposed to be based on existing information-based systems. So using existing data analytics, it should not require fresh infrastructure. But again, there's all to play for. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Shiva. Just very briefly on this, I wanted to pick up on Shiva's point before, that we don't have to wait for the treaty to enter into force. And I think this is a great example, because the, the research vessels that are going out in the high seas now and collecting genetic sequence, uh, genetic material, it's a short list of research agencies that are funding those. It's not 300 entities that have to be convinced that they need a new layer of transparency permeating their activities. It's a handful. Starting those conversations now and making this a norm of best practice even before regulatory practices come into, come into force, I think it's, it's a good investment of effort. And if they're following a proper research protocols anyway, it's not going to be any added burden to, to provide this information as well. So I, I think it's low-hanging fruit. So you say it's low-hanging fruit, but isn't there a tension here between what you both just said and what, and what Lori said a minute ago? She said that you know, if businesses and corporations want to implement this, they need to know what it is. And, and yet, you just said, Shiva, no one knows what it is. Yes. So, so how, how are we going to square the circle? So I, I, I think Laurie probably has quite a lot of views on this. Uh, I have a quick suggestion, because it's the, the responsibilities for research institutions, they are clear in the agreement. The responsibilities for companies, they are not so clear. Mm -hmm. So it depends on which private sector we're we talking about there also. And I think just on the batch identifier point, I mean, it's super interesting having this conversation now because I, that when we were talking about it in the negotiations, what I took away from it was the point was to have something uniform that we had agreed at the BBNJ level that has to go on everything, you know, every... So when a research cruise goes out, it will collect however many samples, and one of the identifying things on the QR code, or however it's done for a sample, will be, I don't know, BBNJ, insert number of digits, or however the thing looks. So it is a little bit tricky for us to start doing it now. Now, I don't dispute that there are good current research practices that would say you have geolocation data on there, you have other data, but and that will help us manage the system and that there will be this 
massive stuff that it doesn't have a battery identifier, but we might be able to figure out where it came from. But I think it would be a little bit of a concern both from ensuring that we implement the agreement properly at the international level, but also for research institutes and companies if the UK, get, for example, starts going, OK, well, our BB&J batter identifier is X, because I don't think that's what we're talking about. But that goes back to needing to get on with the preparatory work and starting to figure out what is it going to look like so we can start building it into the, you know, the database fields for the DSI, into the collection, you know, the database fields for the collection. So when, when our first batter identifier comes zooming through to somebody, it's easy to just stick it into the databases. Thank you, we've, we've almost out of time, so I'm going to give the last comment to you, Shiva, because we've promised everyone a glass of wine as well. <laughs> so that, that's very important. So, so, so Shiva, the, the last comment for this evening. Um, so the, I think it, it would be very good to end on the batch identifier because I think that that's a shining example of legal imagination doing really well in the treaty language. Um, when I said we don't know what it looks like, we do know what it should do. Mm. And that should give us enough clue about how we build this. So we need the data analytics people to talk to us about that. But we have a clear idea of what legally it should be doing. And I think that's a really, really good start. And I also I would like to say some of Robert's research, for instance, shows that scientists do want to tell us where they pick up these genetic resources from. So this idea that you know this is all very cumbersome and burdensome, I don't think rings entirely true because um, you know, the scientist community, I think, is, is, you know, is bound by uh, certain ethical rules on how they behave. And again, like Robert said, they are a very small community on the high seas research angle. So I, I don't see these as far away goals. I feel these are really attainable, and we've got to keep the momentum going. It's a, one, a wonderful way to end this evening, uh, Sheila. Thank you. And um, thank you. All of you, thank you, Michael, in New York. This has been, this is an amazing achievement. That, that in, you, Cairo. Uh, in Cairo. I'm sorry, he's in Cairo. Uh, <laughs> my, my apologies. Um, thank you all so much for what you've achieved here, and thank you for such an incredible conversation this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.